Juliet Fay is the award-winning, best-selling author of tender novels that raise questions of loss, regret, second chances, and the influence families play in life-changing decisions. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading Today, Julia talks about her latest novel, The Half of It described by the critics as, quotes, an immensely satisfying page-turner, perfect for fans of Josie Silver and Jojo Moyes. Helen and Cal enjoyed one perfect night and then 40 years of buried hurt. They've got one chance to make it right, but can the past ever be fixed? Giveaway this week is, take a break with a free book, get ready for the beach, with Book Bundle 2 in my Of Golden Blood series, Poisoned Legacy and Tangled Destiny, included in the offer. That's a full-length mystery and a New York Christmas novella and prequel with 60-plus other mysteries and thrillers. A great range of choice there. Highly likely you'll find something you love. Information for where to download the books on the show notes for this episode on the Joys of Binge Reading website along with the details of all the stuff Juliet and I are talking about today, including links to the books that Juliet's reading at the moment. And remember, if you enjoy the show, leave us a review so others will find us too. Word of mouth is still by far the best way for others to discover the show and great books they want to read. But now, here's Juliet. Hello there, Juliet, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Look, we're talking about your latest book, The Half of It. It's a perfectly executed second chance love story. And I wondered right at the beginning, how would you define it in terms of genre fiction? Is it a romance? Is it a second coming of age story? How would you classify it? I would classify it as contemporary fiction. It's not really a classical romance story in that there's a lot more going on. It's really about the entire life of the main character, Helen Spencer, who's 58 years old. And it's about her relationships with her friends and her children. There is a romance at the center of it or a potential romance. But I like that phrase, second coming of age. I think that she's at a point in her life where she really needs to make a course correction. And that's the crux of it. It's interesting. And the population in general is growing older, we probably have a little bit more time to regroup. And in fact, it becomes necessary if you're going to just keep on living to have a chance to regroup, look back on your life, decide whether there are things you would have done differently, take stock a little bit, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that was so fascinating to me writing this story is that Looking around, there aren't very many books with main characters in their 50s and 60s. It's very few. I mean, you have to really dig. It seems that there's books of characters in their 70s, 80s, and 90s, and then 20s, 30s, and 40s. I feel like everybody is in their 30s, most of the books. But your 50s and 60s are such a fascinating time because, as you say, 
you get a second chance to think things through. Maybe you're retiring, maybe you have children and they've gone off. I mean, it's a real sort of turning point. I think it's such a fascinating life stage. I was fascinated to see that nobody's picking up on that. And so many readers are in their later stages in life. And we want to read about ourselves, really. The title of the half of it is, it's an idiom. I know from growing up that phrase, oh, you don't know the half of it. And it seemed an interesting title to choose for a book. I wondered, uh, the general meaning we interpret as meaning, it's actually much worse than you know about. And I wondered why you chose that title and how it relates to the book. So it's interesting. I would say that the half of it means, you know, you don't know the half of it means it's a much bigger story. Not necessarily bad, but there's way more going on here than you know about. When somebody says, you don't know the half of it, there's way more going on. And when Helen and Cal meet, should I maybe give a little quick intro about what the book is about? Yes, that's a great idea. Helen Spencer is 58 years old and she has just come to the conclusion that her life has not turned out as planned. And she can trace back where things started going awry to a night that she spent in the woods with a boy that she loved, who loved her. They had this wondrous romantic night in the woods. And then the next day, everything blew up and things have been going a little bit wrong ever since. But she doesn't want to delve into that. She just wants to keep putting one foot in front of the other. And she hasn't seen Cal since high school. And one day they bump into each other. And Cal tracks her down and he wants to talk about what happened. And the, the jacket copy says, he doesn't know the can of worms she's about to open. He doesn't know the half of it. Yeah. And what he doesn't know and she doesn't know about him is what happened in the rest of their lives and how that one night affected them both. The domino effect of this one decision and what happened the next day and how that's affected both of them. So they have a lot of catching up to do. And they have a lot of working it out to do. I mean, there's still a lot of hurt and anger from what happened. Yes, Helen is recently widowed, not so long ago widowed. So that's another part of her life that she's taking stock of her marriage and how successful it really was or satisfying emotionally it really was for her. Do you think that women are inclined to make these reviews of their life a little bit later than men do, that they have earlier years of their life, they're so consumed with serving other people's needs, husbands, children, just keeping things together if they're trying to work a job as well. And maybe they find it later in life that they start to look back and think, what to second guess themselves a little bit. That's such an interesting point that you make. And I think you're right about that. I know everybody's different. But men seem to have that classic midlife crisis at around 40 and they buy the car or they whatever, start fly fishing or something like that. And I think that you're right that many women are so busy just trying to keep all the plates spinning in their lives and often in the lives of the people they care about, maybe children, maybe a spouse, maybe family members, that they don't really take that time until maybe later in life and when hopefully things quiet down a little bit and they can have that chance to say, hmm, is this really working out as planned? Yeah. I did use that phrase, second coming of age, because it seemed to me as I was reading the book, Helen is 
learning almost for the first time some of the things that are true about her and some of the things that she wants out of life that she hasn't had already. So that's part of the journey the book takes, isn't it? It is. It certainly is. And I started writing this book in the middle of the pandemic, and it was really inspired by that first summer whenever we were all in lockdown with absence of social connection and going out and doing things. People seem to be taking that pause in social interaction to take stock and review and really ask themselves important questions. People of all ages were doing this. I was fascinated by that and asking themselves questions like, is this the person I should be with? Or is this the job I really want? Or should I move closer to my family? Or should I move further away from my family? What is it that I want from life? And is this it? And I'm going to say to you that I am pretty happy in my life. I've been married for 32 years and I love my husband and I love my kids and I love my community and I love my job. But what if you didn't? What if you took that reflection and you said, oh, no, this is not what I, this is not where I thought I would be, or this is not what I want. And Helen really hasn't taken that look until now. And it's tough for her because she has been serving others and she has a job she never really wanted. And she was in a marriage that was lukewarm. She had children early and they consume her, but they're older now. And so they're off on their own. And she realizes there were things that she didn't get that she wanted. It's interesting, her children, particularly the relationship with her daughter, it's almost like the daughter now thinks that she's got more rights than one might consider to tell her mother what to do and to run her life. So even in that respect, she hasn't quite established her autonomy. That's really true. So As an oldest daughter myself, and I have my oldest child is a daughter, we tend to be a little bossy. And one of the things that I really felt, so Helen's daughter is Barb, and Barb is happy. Barb is doing work that she loves. She has a husband who is wonderful. She's just adopted a little baby daughter. I mean, Barb's life has gone pretty great. And one of the things that Helen starts to pick up on is that her children realize that her life hasn't gone that well. And in different ways, they are all trying to avoid her fate. And Barb is really the one she's the closest to. She lives nearby. She takes care of the granddaughter. And Barb is the one who really is that bossy oldest daughter who's saying, mom, you need to change things. You need to be open to things. And they really do have a funny almost backwards relationship. And yet Helen is often saying to her daughter, I'm the mother. You're not the mother. I'm the mother. But it's a very loving relationship. And so Barb nudges her to be happier. Yeah, that's great. You've got a piece online that you wrote for Psychology Today about writing your way to a happy brain. It was a lovely piece, but it indicates that you might have gone through a similar kind of vision of your life, but at quite a lot earlier age. Would you like talking about that? It is online for everybody to see. Yes, right. It's no big secret. So I had my fourth child and I had quit my job. I was working part-time. So I was home with the kids and I was actually quite unhappy. I love my children. I love being with them, but I really felt like I was not using my brain. I used to joke that I was a wiper of spills, a wiper of bottoms, a wiper of noses, like I was a professional wiper. 
And I felt very constrained by the fact that I didn't have anything that was mine. And I tried a bunch of different things. Like I knew, and my husband knew that I was not happy and I needed to find something. And so I started writing and I, I describe it. It's a little bit like falling in love. Like I couldn't wait to get back to my characters. I couldn't wait. I was about 40 and it was, I would say, a little midlife crisis of, okay, this is great. I'm very grateful that I have all these little crazy people running around and my wonderful husband, but it's still not enough. I still need something else. And I was able to feed that need with writing. And it's been a wonderful thing for the last 20 years. I think you say that even if you didn't get published, you'd still do it. Is that right? Yeah, I really, I, it's just something I love to do. I can't tell you how often people say to me, how do you have the discipline to sit in a room and write all day long? And my answer to that is I don't need discipline to write. It's what I love to do. It's like asking me how I have the discipline to eat a hot fudge sundae. Like, I don't mean, I enjoy it. I need discipline to go to the grocery store and do the laundry. I don't need discipline to write. That's what I like. Tell me a little bit about your drawing journey. When you started writing, what was your goal? Did you have a long-term goal like getting published? Or at the beginning, were you just simply doing it almost as your personal therapy? I really, I had no idea about getting published, which is funny because I had always been a voracious reader. I have always been somebody who has stories running in my head. I make stories up in my head all the time. But it never occurred to me to really write any of them down. And so once I started doing that, when I wrote my first novel and I only told a few people, I just thought it was such a strange thing. You go to a party. Well, what are you up to these days? Well, I'm writing a novel. Oh, I, I just sounded so strange. So I really didn't tell anybody. I was very secretive about it. And But I did tell a couple of friends who read as I wrote. I would hand them chapters. And at the end, they said they really urged me to try and get published. And so then I went on this journey of trying to figure out what is this publishing world? How does it work? How do I get in? And I have to say, I feel that I was very lucky because there are many good books out there that didn't see the light of day because the author didn't have the luck of finding it's very hard to get an agent. It's very hard to get. It's a tough business and it continues to be a tough business even once you're in it. So I do feel that I was very lucky to get published. Yeah. But one of the books, the romances, we won't give anything away by going any further into it than that, doesn't go anywhere because of the young man's calling to the priesthood. And he keeps this quiet for quite a while so that when he finally fesses up that he's not going to be going any further with this relationship because of this calling on his life, the young woman is slightly gobsmacked. And I see in your biography, it was just an interesting little hint there that both you and your husband served in Jesuit volunteer programs and social justice initiatives. You both had quite strong commitments in that area. And I wondered if this was another little area of your life intersecting with your story. So you're talking about my first book, Shelter Me. And yes, absolutely. It was something I, I worked in the Jesuit volunteer corps. I worked in a shelter in Seattle, Washington. My husband worked for legal services in Buffalo, New York. And we both knew many priests because of our work, and I was fascinated by their lives and how they could be very kind, loving people, and yet they kept themselves closed off to any romantic relationship. And so it was something that was interesting for me to explore. 
And yes, absolutely. Taking a little piece of my faith life and putting it. And I think that's what authors often do. We interject our books with little pieces of things that we're interested in that, that come from our own lives. None of my books are autobiographical in any way, but I sometimes say they're autobiographical in the sense that what the reader sees are the things that I'm interested in, not necessarily things that have happened to me, but themes and conundrums and conflicts and characters and settings that intrigue me. And so that's the way in which you're learning a little bit about me by reading my books. There's quite a strong sense of morality in them too. And I wondered, generally genre fiction is considered to be for mainly entertainment purposes. Do you have any other thoughts but keeping your readers entertained as you're writing? Sure. So it's interesting that you say that morality is a big, I don't know that I would say morality. I would say that my books definitely have a strong theme of giving and volunteerism and being a part of a community and being a generous person. And I think that all of my characters strive to be better than they are. And that is what I'm interested in. I'm interested in growth in a character. When I read and when I write, I want to see how the character is going to get out of this mess and be a better person toward the end. But first and foremost, I do want it to be entertaining. I don't want it to be some sort of morality play about how we should all be good. It really, I mean, there's a lot of humor in my books. There's a lot of crazy scenarios. And so I do want, I really want my readers, I always say the three things I want a reader to do is laugh, cry, and lose sleep. The wrong word, perhaps integrity. Integrity, that's a good word, yeah. Some of the things that Cal does, young as he is, lack integrity. That's true. Yeah. And he has to speak for that. He has to, those chickens come home to roost. And he has to face that even 40 years later. He has to face it. Sure. Yeah. And he wants to face it. And I think that's part of the message of the book is if you have a mess to clean up, if you have an apology to make, if you have some something to fix in your life, now's the time. You can do that until the day you die. You, you have that opportunity. And I think one of the lovely things is as it develops, they do make the very most of the time that they have. They manage to do that by the end of the novel. They live wholeheartedly, don't they? Yes, they do. They do. And they they rekindle their friendship, which is really, as Helen says, the most important thing they ever were. They were friends in high school before that, before that romantic night. And that's their friendship is really the most important thing. Yes, as we've mentioned, you have a common theme of women finding agency in their lives. And this is your seventh novel, but one of the earlier ones, The Tumbling Turner Sisters, was a bestseller described by a critic as a funhouse take on Little Women. And that sounded fascinating too, all of these sisters. Tell us a bit about that book. It sounds like it was quite a breakthrough book for you. It really was such a change of pace for me because it was my first historical fiction. The Tumbling Turner Sisters is about a family in 1919 living in upstate New York, and their father is injured and can't work anymore. And so they are facing eviction, and their mother, who has always wanted to be on the stage, decides to turn them into a vaudeville act, and they become tumblers. And they're pretty terrible at first. But as their agent, this wisecracking, New York agent tells them pretty girls in short skirts sells. 
So they go on the road, which was a very unusual thing for young women to do in 1919. Every week is a different venue, a different town. They travel by train all over the country. And it really is a very much an awakening for them. They come from this little small town in upstate New York, and suddenly they're, they're crossing paths. So the performers, vaudeville, just in, in case people don't know, was the nation's main form of entertainment from the 1880s through the 1920s. Every small town had a vaudeville theater, and the troupe would come into town, and it would be a, a review of seven to 15 unconnected acts jugglers, singers, dancers, comedians, animal tricks, playing the spoons, weird stuff. A big, one of the big hits was regurgitators. They would swallow things and then bring them up. It was just crazy stuff. It was so fun to research that book. But, you know, as you point out, I am very interested in women's agency and women learning to take the reins in their own lives which is very much true in the half of it. Helen really does need to take the reins and make some changes. And I think there's, there's so many ways in which women are often boxed in a little bit by their gender and by the expectations of who they'll be and how they'll be. And I like to read stories where women are empowered. So that's often what I write. But you didn't consciously model the Tuna sisters on little women. I didn't. But one of the girls does read Little Women in the story. And no, honestly, I had gotten halfway through the story and I, I said, oh, one of them is a big reader. And what would she be reading? And I was looking at what kids were reading in 1919. And Little Women was one of them. I loved Little Women. I must have read that 15 times when I was a kid. And then I was like, wait a minute, four sisters in a difficult time. And that really, it's funny how your brain will weave things together that you're not looking for. And then suddenly you see the connection. And it's very exciting. Turning away from the specific books to your wider career, do you think that your life and work experience before you started writing has influenced your work? Oh, yes, absolutely. So for 20 years, I was in human services and I worked predominantly in child abuse prevention and parenting education and childcare and so sort of family services kind of thing. And so many stories, you learn so much about people when you see them at their neediest. And uh, I don't use those stories specifically because I don't, I just don't feel like I don't want to take other people's stories, but I feel like I've learned a lot about human nature and the human condition from that work for sure. And I continue, I volunteer at a shelter every week to this day because I really enjoy it. If there was one thing that you see as the, quote, secret of your success, and I guess people are always looking for the secret of success right. in your creative career, inside of publishing or outside of it, what would it be? That is such an interesting question. The secret of, it depends on success at what? Success at publishing books? I mean, like I said, I think I work really hard to provide a good product, but I've been lucky. I think that one of the things that I'm most grateful for is that I did start my career in publishing in my 40s. And I just, like, I had a big, a pretty big life by that time. It wasn't the only thing in my life. And so when I get a bad review or somebody would be difficult, I would think, oh, okay. I wouldn't flip out. I see, I think a lot of writers, I mean, you're, this is something you've created. This is art. This is something that comes from inside of you. And it's very hard when somebody's flippantly disliking it or whatever. Nobody likes a bad review. 
But I see sometimes other writers, particularly younger writers, getting very upset sometimes about these things. And it's, you know what? There's nothing you're going to do that everyone's going to. It's just something you learn as you get older. So I think the ability to mostly keep an even keel about things has made it easier for me to stay in this job. And it's easier for me as a human. Yeah. Yeah. I notice also on your website that you're very open to chatting with book clubs. And all of your books have got book club questions that people can look into or dip into if they if they want to. You're happy to set up talks with them. So I know most of those would be in the US, but just because we do have a slightly wider international audience, can you explain how that works and how people can absolutely if they're interested? I have to tell you, I love talking to book groups. It's really fun. It's very casual. We just chat. Whatever you want to talk about, whatever comments you want to make or questions you have. And it's fun to be able to talk about the whole book. Like you and I cannot talk about the ending or spoilers or that kind of thing. But with a book club where everybody's read the book, it's really fun to talk about everything. So I do love doing that. And I have talked to book groups in other countries. Japan, I know I did recently. So... It's all a matter of timing and making sure it's it's the right time of day when everyone's awake. You would just go onto my website, julietfay.com. There's a contact there. You just email me, julietfay.com, and tell me when you're thinking about having your meeting. And then I Zoom. I would just Zoom with the group. And sometimes the whole group is on Zoom or sometimes the group gets together at someone's house and then I'm on Zoom and the rest of them are on the other side. Yes, very much happy to do that um, with anyone. So I encourage that. That's fabulous. But because this is the joys of binge reading, we do like to ask you about your reading taste, so particularly whether you've ever been a binge reader as such. But just what are you reading now and what do you like to recommend to listeners? Absolutely. I am a big audiobook reader, listener, I should say. I'm a sort of obsessive gardener and I love to listen to a book while I'm weeding or planting things or digging rocks out of my garden. Or driving. I do a lot of driving. So that's another time when I really love to listen to books. So it's important to me that not only is the book good, but the narrator is good. And there's some narrators that I love and I will read a book. I'll listen to a book just because of the narrator. Um, I mostly listen, my, my the books that I enjoy the most are probably historical fiction and women's fiction, relationship fiction, family drama, that kind of thing. So I would say two of the best audiobooks for historical fiction that I've listened to recently with great narrators is The Giver of Stars by Jojo Moyes. Loved that. And The Exiles by Christina Baker Klein. I love quirky characters. So I, in terms of contemporary fiction, I loved Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. That I loved. And most recently, I just finished listening to Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. It's called romantic comedy. It is a romance, but it's deep. It really gets into how this woman looks at her life. She's in some ways a little bit like Helen. She's a little repressed and a l- not repressed, but she doesn't think that she's going to find real love in her life. And it's a very fun story. So I, the, all of those I can recommend highly. Fabulous. Yes, I, the curtain, Curtis hits and fell one has attracted my attention. I haven't had a chance to look at it yet, but I have read some of the earlier books and they were great too. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your creative career you changed, what would it be? 
Oh, that is so interesting. I don't, I can't, that's a really interesting question. Oh, I would have been a, I would have been on Oprah or something, I guess. But I feel like given that it's a very tough industry, it's very hard to get in. It's very hard to stay in. I feel pretty lucky that I've been able to stay in for seven books. And I'm proud of the books that I've written. And I feel good about that. I don't know. I guess I don't really have any regrets about my career. Maybe I should come up with some just to be more interesting. But I guess I'm doubt. I haven't started it. 40. A lot of people who do start writing just a bit later in life regret they didn't start earlier, but you've got the advantage there. Yeah, I don't think that I would have been as good at it. Honestly, I just feel like I had so much more life under my belt. And in my 20s and 30s, I was very busy with a career and children and all kinds of things. And I don't regret starting earlier. I think that I was able to bank a bunch of interesting life experiences that helped me be a better writer in my 40s. Yeah. But looking forward to the next 12 months in your life as a writer, what have you got on your desk that you're working on or that you're thinking about? Well, I have another book that I've finished and we're seeing what editors are out there. My editor retired, so I'm looking for a new editor. My agent is working on that. I have a historical fiction that I haven't quite finished and I'm thinking I'm going to go back to that. Honestly, I think I'm going to take the summer off. I'm going to just, there's a way in which you need to let the well fill up a little bit. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to just garden a lot and do some traveling and see my children or stuff like that. Fun stuff. Go to the beach and then see where we're at maybe in September. I'm interested in the garden because I'm a gardener. So tell me a little about your garden. What zone are you in and what sort of garden do you have? So I'm in zone six and I do not have full sun in any place in my yard. So I do a lot of shade. I have probably 20 varieties of hostas. I'm a big Astilbe fan. I love epimediums. There's something I love about just getting dirty and being out there. I think it's wonderful to be dedicated to a shade garden because they in some ways are harder, aren't they? They are hard. They're not as flashy. But they can still be very beautiful. And for me, it's like a just a big art project. It's like a big canvas. And I get to paint it however I want. So I enjoy it. It's gorgeous. You had mentioned about emailing through your website. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers? And where is the best place for them to find you online? Oh, I do love it. I really do. It's funny. Many writers are introverts. They just like to be alone in a room with their imaginary friends. And I do love that. But I am a big extrovert. So I love communicating with people. I am on Facebook at Juliet Fay Author. I'm on Twitter, Juliet Fay. I'm on Instagram. I really enjoy posting pictures on Instagram. So that and people can always reach me by email. And I do answer. It's so funny. Every once in a while, somebody will write to me and I write back and they say, I can't believe you wrote me back. And I'm like, well, you took the time to write to me. So of course I'm going to answer you. So yeah, I do like that. That's lovely, Juliet. Look, thanks so much for your time. It's been a delight to talk. Oh, I thank you so much. It's been really fun. Next week on Binge Reading, Amy Popow's fresh and funny fourth rom-com, The Sweet Spot. Three women, Lauren, Olivia and Melinda, all with totally different motives and at the beginning not necessarily good motives, are drawn into caring for baby Horatio. It's described as 
a love letter to family, friendships and Greenwich Village. That's next week on Binge Reading. Just before we go, remember, leave us a review if you enjoy the show so others will find us too. That's it for today. See you next time.